May God bless and anoint your message today. Thank you. Sorry if I just pull this down. I'll be a little, I'll be a little more comfortable. How's that? It is very good to be with you all again. Uh, you know, it was such a sweet time of worship. Thank you, worship team. <laughs> I almost hate to go to such a harsh topic <laughs> after that. Uh, when Mark, uh, your pastor, said he was going to be out of town and asked me to speak, uh, he was just mindful, of course, everything is going on in the news and holding lots of conversations with people. What to think about what's going on with the war that's taking place between Israel and Hamas and Gaza and the overall Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. And he says, David, you've, you've got the experience and uh, maybe some perspective that you could share with our people that would be helpful. Would you speak about that? And, uh, and he said, it doesn't have to be like a preach, preaching sermon thing. It can be more of a teaching seminar thing. All right, so I may not be exactly preaching uh, this morning, but we will be in the Word of God quite a lot as we go through. And I have an awful lot to to uh, uh, speak about, but I was just thinking this morning, here it is, the New Year's Eve, and we're, you know, telling everybody, Happy New Year, and what do you tell a person in the Middle East today? What do you tell a person in Israel or in Gaza or in the Palestinian territories? You know, do they say, Happy New Year, filled with glee? Uh, it's not so much that way for them, is it? I mean, they're all hoping for a happier New Year than what they have had here in 2023. And uh, here we are enjoying this uh, sweetness, this peace, and this uh, uh, intimacy that we can have with God and, and with one another here in worship. And so many of them don't even know what that is. Right? The vast majority of the people living over there are non-believers. They don't have the peace of Christ. They don't know what we know. And uh, that's just so sad. Uh, Mary, you said there was going to be a clicker. I may need that at some point. Either that I can just tell you when. <laughs> think I covered it up. But anyhow, they don't have that. But I, I, I probably ought to let you know there are believers in the mix, right? There are believers uh, in the mix. Um, among the, the Israeli Jewish people, uh, there are nearly 20,000 uh, born-again evangelical-type believers in Jesus, you know, Messianic Jews, Jewish Christians, whatever you want to call them. People have had the same kind of experience we have had uh, with the Lord through personal repentance and personal conversion and uh, being born again. And uh, they're scattered throughout the country in and, and various uh, um, you know, churches. Um, so there's a, there, there is that going on over there. Uh, there is among the Palestinians, uh, there are more than 80,000 Christian background Arabs in the mix. Now, understand there's nearly 9 million Palestinians. So you say only 80,000 is still a very small minority. Most of them, of course, are of the majority religion there. Uh, but uh, not all of them, of course, are born-again Christians. Uh, some of them are just cultural Christians, nominal Christians, or there with the historic communities where, uh, sadly, there's not so much an emphasis or a preaching on a need for a personal repentance, a relationship with Jesus uh, through the new birth. And they don't do that. And it's estimated somewhere, and my statistics might be a little bit old, but uh, uh, maybe about 6,000 evangelical uh, Arab Christians in the mix over there. And uh, they do know the peace of God that surpasses understanding. And they can know that in the midst of this. But, of course, their lives have been uh, characterized by so much grief uh, recently, you know, so much loss recently. 
attending funerals so often. Uh, you know, it's just been become, you know, memorial services. It's just become part of their lives here for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks since October uh, 7th. Um, I do want you to know there is uh, that believing element in the mix there. And then there are assorted internationals, a few thousand internationals that I think I could confidently say are born-again believers in the mix over there, too, that are temporary residents or working over there or for some reason just resident in the land, many of them attending local congregations or many of them attending maybe international uh, churches over there. As you see the title slide here, I talk about it as a complex conflict with military, political, informational, psychological, and spiritual fronts. And they could probably add to that list, right? There's more kinds of fronts than just what I listed on there. So we can't get into everything here this morning that you would like to know. Uh, I am going to try to leave a little bit of time toward the end for some questions if we can, although I do have a lot of material to go through uh, just to see if I can answer anything that you know, just is really a burning question uh, with you. But it's that last one, you know, the spiritual front. Uh, that I'm, I'm starting out here with uh, this morning. Um, some people may call it a religious front. I would call it a spiritual front uh, in, this, in this war. And, um, uh, you know, so I think it's just appropriate maybe to talk about the, the believers that are over there. And so I've told you a little bit of the, at least the, the numbers. Gaza itself, where the conflict is so concentrated, uh, there's only about 1,000 out of the two million residents of Gaza, about a thousand people of a Christian background. And of that, the vast majority, 950 of them, would either belong to a Roman Catholic congregation uh, and, and set up that is there, or to a Greek Orthodox uh, set up that is there. There's just between 50 and 60 evangelical, known evangelical believers uh, in, in all of Gaza. So it's not heavily populated. Uh, with believers there. We do have missionaries in the Middle East, as do several organizations, not just the Alliance, but I thought you might be interested in knowing the Alliance does have uh, a, you know, a team of teams of international workers over there. Our, our international worker team is a highly international team these days. When I first went and served in Israel in 1988, we were there from 88 to 2004, and then for another 12 years, I served out of our national office as a a uh, member of the senior leadership team that had responsibility for that whole part of the world. Uh, so I've gotten in and out of there a lot. But when I first went there, they were all North American missionaries. And today it's uh, an international uh, team. All told, Alliance churches have sent from different sending countries uh, 17 uh, units over there, 17 family units. Now, if you're a single person, you're counted as a unit. If you're a family of six, you're counted as a unit. <laughs> right? So there's 17 different uh, family units over there. Some of them are single. And then some of them are married and have children. So altogether, there are 61 people who are alliance and on mission there when you count their children and everything with it. So that's a, a handful of people to be responsible for during a time like this. And they come from the United States, but they also come from Canada. They come from Ecuador. They come from Holland. They come from Germany. They come from South Africa. They come from China. And they come from Korea. And the commonality is that they're alliance people, and so they have a sense of solidarity and community with each other, but they're all doing different kinds of work. And some are working with the Palestinian Arab population. Some are working with the uh, Messianic Jewish population. And, uh, you know, one would be in Arabic, one would be in Hebrew. And then others are working with international communities there. There's a Korean international church. There's a Chinese international church uh, that we work with there. And so there's all those people there, and most of them have stayed during this time although many have been relocated from where they live every day. If they've been in a dangerous area, they've moved to a more secure part of the country of Israel. Um, 
just like the local population has had to do, evacuating from around the hotspots and being relocated to safer places where you can do your work and maybe suspending your normal ministries, still have normal worship and support in the body of Christ, uh, but the war presents so many different kinds of things you've got to do to serve in the name of Christ at a time like this. And so uh, they're, they're reaching out in uh, different kinds of ways because war affords a lot of different opportunities uh, to share the gospel in meaningful ways. So let's do, when you see the news, you don't think of the believers in the midst, but I want you to know they're there. Some are missionaries, many more, of course, are, are local people, and they are trying to figure out how to live as Christians in the middle of this and how to think about this also as Christians uh, in, in, uh, with all of the, the difficulty uh, going on. Uh, I did want you to know uh, that the Alliance has set up a fund. I didn't want to forget to do this, so I put it at the beginning. Uh, the Alliance has set up a fund called the Holy Land Mercy Fund that you can give your gifts to. Uh, you go online to the Alliance website, and uh, I have the link up there. Um, you can uh, then click. I have a picture of what it looks like when you go there. There's four things there. It's four areas. You one in the bottom right corner says a project you love. If you click on that and then just type into the... the uh, the line that opens up for you there, you just type in their Holy Land Mercy Fund and you can give to that. And I want you to know those funds are being used to help people that are uh, hurting or displaced or have needs because of the conflict that's going on over there. And those things are administered through either missionaries or through um, the local churches that are recipients of those funds. So I want you to know Alliance people, you can be giving and to help out in, in practical ways. And I would just encourage you when you think of this in your prayer times, and it does come on your mind, you know, how to, how to be thinking about this, what do we do about this, not just a matter of giving, but your prayers really make a difference, right? One of our church leaders over there has said that the, you know, kneeling prayer warriors are much more mighty than standing armies, right? Kneeling prayer warriors are stronger than standing armies. We can see a whole lot more affected through prayer than you maybe realize. It is a way of entering into this because it has a spiritual dynamic uh, going on. And so I'd encourage you to pray. But when you pray, don't think of it in terms of maybe simply I'm on this side and you're on that side, or here's right and here's wrong. But maybe just be a little bit more nuanced than that, uh, maybe a little more sophisticated in the way you look at it, not just in a black and white way, but just simply think, now as I pray this morning or I pray today uh, for Palestinians, if I was a Palestinian believer in this mix, what would I need? What would, what would God have me do? What would God have me pray? And pray for that for the Palestinians that are trying to shine the, the light of Christ or the Israeli Arabs or the, uh, you know, the uh, others that are over there. Or if I was an international that just kind of got stuck in this and it's not really my fight historically at all, but I find myself here ministering to, say, Chinese laborers who are here in the land and uh, you know, they're away from home and yet they're in the middle of How would I want to pray for the, those types of people? And then think if I was a, a Jewish person, you know, and how this is affecting me. How would I pray? Just think a little bit deeper there, but just listen to the Holy Spirit. He'll give you all kinds of insights directly in your own heart on how to pray. So I encourage you to think of this as a spiritual thing as well. And of course, for the Hamas side of this conflict, it is for sure a religious battle because they view this very much as a place where once the flag of Islam was waved, uh, where the rule of Islamic rulers and Allah then was over this land, and it's been lost through the years, and that's just an affront to their God. And so they look at it like it's a religious thing for the honor of their God. They've just got to get this territory back. They have to put it back under the rule of, of Allah, which is maybe helps explains to some of you as to why they don't seem so willing to compromise on anything. All right? When this is your mindset, 
not all Jews are religious Jews and not all Arabs are religious Arabs, but the ones who are ruling right now and the Arab side of this thing, they're very much invested in their religious outlook on all of this. And it's the leaders that uh, you know, work with negotiations, trying to come up with peace uh, treaties and that sort of thing, and they're just not willing to budge out of those kinds of convictions. So it does have this spiritual side to it. Uh, so I'd like to start here and try to race through the first part of this, if I can. Um, some biblical observations just generally about territorial disputes and warfare. It's a subject we don't think about often. Probably the last time our nation thought of it in a deep way, maybe, well, maybe in the Iraq situations we did, certainly in Vietnam years and World War II and World War I, or, you know, we had to think these things through, but we don't think about war every day. What is the biblical perspective on a dispute like this where you have territory under dispute and, and all that? How does that uh, work out for us? What, how should we think about it? And there are biblical points I'd like to make uh, that should shape the way that we think and, uh, and uh, uh, process what is, uh, is going on. Uh, and it really has to come down with a, a, a robust theology or renewing our theology of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over peoples and nations and history. All right? the, I think we need to think in those words. And so I often get the question, who owns that land anyway? Who does it belong to? And the biblical answer is, of course, all right, the earth belongs to the Lord. Right? It's his. I know that might sound, some, sound simplistic. It might seem like it's impractical because there's lots of other ways people claim ownership, right? But ultimately, if you're a believer, you, you trust it. It is God's, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And all who live in it, says Psalm 24.1. Job 41.11 says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Right? That's what God said to Job uh, when he spoke out of the whirlwind. Uh, everything on the earth belongs to the Lord. It's his land. It's his territory. It's his to do with what he deems to do as the Lord of human affairs. All right. uh, a second point is that God raises up nations and tears down nations. He takes credit for that. He takes a credit for that in our human history. Job 12.23, again going to Job, says he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he disperses them. Exodus 24.34 says, I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your territory. That's what God said to the Israelites when they were to go in uh, to the land of Canaan. And so you have that. And then a verse like Jeremiah 25.9 illustrates this, where the Lord says through Jeremiah, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant, king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. We don't like to think of God like that, but he's taking credit for raising up nations and putting down nations. Uh, and he sometimes works on behalf of Israel to be the one who executes maybe judgment on his behalf and, and, and gets a victory. And other times he uses other nations to judge Israel, to judge his people. Right? We see it going both ways. Uh, but the bigger point is, he says, all the nations, through all the uh, people over there, God is the one that raises them up and tears them down. He also says he installs and deposes rulers and authorities. Romans 13.1 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, we look around the world, and we put them all in categories of good, bad, and all that, and they are. They probably belong in those categories. But one thing they all have in common, they're there because God put them there for the time. 
right? For the current time, anybody that's in a place of authority, he's put them there for the time being. All right, Daniel 2.21, uh, as he sees these visions, uh, one of the messages that God, uh, uh, 2.21 says, he disposes kings and he raises up others. Daniel 4.17 uh, says, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone that he wishes. Daniel 5, 26 and 28, that story of uh, Belshazzar, where God is, uh, the hand is, appears and is writing on the wall, and Daniel has to give an interpretation of what was written there. Uh, this is what he says. These are what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And in Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. All right, God's taking credit for, that's a secular history, right? It had nothing to do with just the, the people of God. God takes credit for that and is working in the affairs of, uh, you know, of human politics. So that's a, a, a point there. Isaiah 45.1 says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed one, Cyrus. So he's already talked about Nebuchadnezzar being an instrument of his, and here's a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus that is an instrument. He calls him anointed one. This is what the Lord says to his anointed one, Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open the doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Wow. Uh, so he's taking credit for raising up that particular ruler. And uh, do you remember when Jesus was in trial, on trial in the Gospel of John? He comes before Pilate, and Jesus answers to Pilate when he starts asking questions. He says, you know, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you from above. <laughs> right? God is the one right, who installs and deposes rulers and authorities. Uh, God sometimes works out his purposes through human warfare, whether for judgment or for blessing. And that's a hard one to swallow. The entire book of Joshua, right, where you have the stories of the conquest. It was already foretold what was going to happen to Abraham before Israel ever went down into Egypt. He was told, your, your descendants are going to suffer down there 400 years, and then they're going to come back to this land. All right? But you have to wait the 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. All right? So he was going to wait 400 whole years before he brought the judgment. But then he was going to bring judgment. And how was he going to bring the judgment? Through the armies of Israel in this case. And the book of Joshua tells that whole story. In 2 Chronicles 12, verses 2, and 4, 2 through 4, it says this. Because they have been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of the king Rehoboam. God brought an army against Israel, right, up all the way to the capital city. Uh, the book of Habakkuk is one of my favorite ones. Uh, a lot of people don't read that book very often, but it's, a, it's actually a very engaging book. But in the first chapter, you find the prophet calling out to the Lord. He's saying, why do my eyes have to see violence everywhere? Why is it I don't see justice anywhere? Why is it the law is always perverted? Why do I have to live in a corrupt society and you don't do anything? That's his complaint, in essence, at the beginning of the book. And the Lord says, I'm doing a work you wouldn't believe if I told you. And then he goes on to tell him. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And they're going to come into this, this nation of yours, and they're going to punish you. They're going to carry your people off into exile. That wasn't the answer that <laughs> Habakkuk was looking for. He wanted to reform, right? But he, he got that kind of an answer. He says, Lord, you're too holy to do anything wrong. How can you use somebody that's even you know, more unrighteous than we are, more evil than we are, to punish us? He says, oh, don't worry. They're going to overstep their bounds, and I'm going to punish them for how they treat you then also. Right? It's just a very interesting thing. And he goes on to say, the just will just have to live by faith. 
right? And that's where the context of that, that uh, wonderful biblical statement that we make so much of as Christians, the just will live by faith. We have to trust in God in the way he rules over the affairs of men. And he goes on to show uh, Habakkuk how the punishment is going to come on those who oppressed Israel and how he's going to renew his work in the midst of the years. And he's going to revive his work with his own people. And he gives him a vision, if you get to chapter 3, of the very last battle on earth where God gets the glory. And uh, the kingdom of God comes and reigns completely. And that's then where Habakkuk says, uh, wow, if the olive trees don't uh, produce any olives and there's no wine from the grapes and there's no uh, grain to put into, into the barns, it doesn't matter. I will still praise the Lord because I've seen the end. I see how this works out. I want to be on his side. It's marvelous and how it's a great book. But it talks about how he uses armies. That's the point in warfare is used. And sometimes it's for judgment and for the victors that can end up being a blessing. And Jesus referred to this in the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. When he talked about the armies that were going to come and surround Jerusalem. And they were going to decimate the holy city. And there wouldn't be one stone left on another in the holy city. He was going to use a Roman army to do that. So we see God sometimes works out his purposes this way. Now here's one. It's a, a verse that you don't often think of in this regard. But I think it's a great verse for us to uh, keep in mind as we talk about this subject. Uh, but this, the heading I gave here is God assigns the bounds of human habitation and times of national prominence. This is Acts 17.26. Acts 17.26 says this. From one man, Paul is speaking in Athens to the people he's uh, ministering to there. He says, from one man he made all the nations, that he is God. From one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. All right, isn't that a remarkable statement? God <laughs> marks out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So God assigns the bounds of human habitation and times of national prominence. If you read on, he says he works this in all such a way that people will seek to know God. <laughs> all right, so he's working with that as his, as his aim. But uh, Amos 9.7 uh, God asked the question uh, of the people through that prophet. He says, did I not bring Israel up out of Egypt? And did I not bring the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? In that one little half a verse, he's taking credit for three different peoples of how he arranged where they were going to live and how they were going to become prominent in the place where he puts them. And uh, then they pass off the pages of history. We don't know much about the Arameans from Kir. We have to look in a encyclopedia to find out where Kir even was, right? And uh, where's Kaftor, you know? <laughs> and the Philistines came from there. Uh, but God is the one who worked in the, their affairs, and he sets the bounds of human habitation, times of national prominence. And I brought with me a, several maps here this morning just to show you how this place in the Middle East, how God has set the bounds for different peoples to be in the ascendancy there and to be prominent there and to have authority there, and how he's torn them down and brought up other people to replace them, and how much this part of the world has gone from ruler to ruler to ruler to ruler and been populated with different kinds of people along the way. So let's go to this. I'll put this one up here. You can't see that one very good, but this is just the descendants of Ham. All the way back in Genesis, the table of nations in Genesis 10, uh, you have the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth uh, from the ark and where their descendants lived and settled in established nations. Their tribes eventually became nations. And you'll see that the Japheth, for example, it was north and west. Uh, you find Ham, it was south and west. And if you see uh, Shem, they were largely in the Middle East and east, uh, for example. But 
you look at the names that are on there. Egypt, you still know today. Libya, you know today. But many of these other names, they're not even place names or people names anymore uh, for us. But this goes way back into ancient history. Right? Here's, a, here's a map of what things looked like uh, during the, about 1300 uh, B.C., when the Hittite Empire, which was up in southern Turkey, was at war with the Egyptian Empire, and the Middle East, uh, the, the land of Israel, the Holy Land, we call it today, uh, was uh, in flux between those two powers. Here then we see uh, when Israel was in ruling there, after they came into the land and conquered the land and the monarchy was started, here's the maximum extent of Israel under David and Solomon. Uh, whether it be through conquered kingdoms, vas va vassal kingdoms, or allied kingdoms. You see it goes way up into Lebanon, up into Syria, all the way up to the, a point on the Euphrates River, all the way down to the Alarish River in Egypt. And uh, you can see it was a rather large territory that Israel had, and they had that land for hundreds of years, right? Not for a small time. But eventually they were overthrown by the Assyrian Empire, and that's who took the northern kingdom off into captivity and ruled the others as vassals. And so they were there for a couple hundred years in authority. All right, then you go on and you see the Babylonian Empire. And they disposed the Assyrians. And, uh, you know, they were there for a couple hundred years. And uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians displaced populations and threw them around all over the place. They, they, they uh, resettled people into places that weren't their lands. Um, they were doing that, by, by the way, religiously to show that their gods were stronger than the local gods, and so they put them into a land where they didn't even have their god anymore. But anyway, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and says, oh, a lot of the people can go back to their homelands. So they had a different policy, and that's how we have some of the Jews returning to the Middle East following their rule. So you have the Medes and the Persians, then you have the Greeks, then there's a very small period of time where the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, have a local revolt from the weak Greek Empire, and they have ascendancy once again over a part of what is the Holy Land. And uh, so it's Jewish-led for just a, a brief period of time, several decades. And, uh, but then the, the Roman Empire comes in and uh, takes over. And the Romans, for several hundred years, are the rulers over this land. And uh, they rename all the areas, and they're also transplanting people and starting colonies of their own and that sort of thing. Uh, they're succeeded then. All right, so this is just, so what I gave you are just the ones before Christ. All right, so you have the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Israelites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Hasmoneans, and Romans, all in charge, all having their boundaries set by the Lord, their times for prominence set on his timetable, uh, they're ruling in the land. And then you get into A.D., you have the uh, later Roman Empire, and by the way, it was during that rule, it's the first time that land became uh, Syria-Palestina. Right, that's when it was named Palestine. That's where we get our modern word Palestine from. It's from the Romans after Christ. All right, so this is the Roman Empire at a point. Uh, here is the Byzantine Empire. And the orange was the strong part of it. And the yellow where they eventually uh, added on some territories. Uh, but you have the Byzantines also for a couple hundred years. Those are Christians ruling over the area. All right, then you have Arab Muslim conquests coming in. The tribes coming in from the, the east and they take over the whole area. Um, they are Islamic. They're uh, asking the entire populations to submit or die uh, kind of conquest. And they come in and they rule then in the area for hundreds of years. Um, the last of the Arab uh, Muslim rulers was the uh, Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, which lasted 400 years. And they had uh, charge over that area there that is kind of orangish on that map. I think they're orange. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so anyhow, you see uh, how this works, that God just sets up different ones. So the idea that, well, then I guess I needed to put in, after World War I, uh, the, British, the British Empire was given the mandate over what was then called Palestine, which is this map here that includes, includes today what is modern Jordan, as well as what is Israel and the Palestinian territories. So the British even got in on it toward the end of their empire, having a piece of this right, for their own. And so God does that. He, from one man, made all the nations that should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. So this area of the world, I hope you can just see through this, is used to an awful lot of struggle. It's at a crossroads between Africa and Asia and Europe, and uh, armies have been through there, and people have come and they've gone, and, and it's, 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 it's been a, a place of violence and conflict uh, for all of these years, with lots of different people in the ascendancy at different periods of time. And uh, along the way, three monolithic, uh, uh, um, monotheistic religions uh, emerged, right? We have Judaism, Christianity, and Islam come out of all that mix and claim these territories as holy. And uh, you have times where it was holy to the Jewish people as they're in charge of it, and you have times where it's holy to the Christians. Uh, and some of that history, like the crusader history, is not pleasant stuff, uh, the way we behaved as uh, we as Christians. And then you have the Muslims who also regarded us holy and uh, ruled it in their time. And so you can see where this is just a place of, natural place for a lot of conflict, historically a lot of conflict. And when you throw religion into the mix besides, as well as just all the grievances of history, uh, it just is a very inflammable place, all right? It's, it's, it's ready to burst. Uh, at a moment's notice for most anything can set it off like a powder keg. That's just how it is. All right, so I'm just going to stop with those observations and let those kinds of things inform the way at least we view this, that God is in charge and he's worked this way and he's worked in this part of the world uh, along these lines uh, throughout history. So the ruling empires of the Holy Land AD, I just I already mentioned them there. Uh, the, several of those are just different varieties of uh, of. Um, Muslims, <laughs> the ones that you wouldn't recognize. All right, so let's, uh, let's take a break now and just say, now in the mix of all this, we know as believers, some things are re revealed about the people and the land that God chose to be here. All right, so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12 and look at verses 1 to 7. Genesis 12, 1 to 7. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Three topics uh, that we could give a message on every one of them, uh, easy, um, are introduced here. 
One is the, the God's love and free election of those he chooses to show favor to and those, those he chooses to use for some specific purpose he has. God is free to select anybody that he chooses right, to do his work and to love those who he wants to love and to bless those that he wants to bless. And somehow, uh, as a believer, you've got to deal with this, that God is free to act in that way. And uh, we have to uh, keep it all in balance with the fact that God loves all people, right? But he sometimes has people that are special to him or used for special purposes, and that's just his, his prerogative uh, to do this. And uh, so we read that from verse 2, right? He says to Abram, why Abram? He just chose him out of all the people on the earth. Uh, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing. Right? So it's just his prerogative to do that. I have a lot of other uh, verses referenced there. But one of the, I'm going to go into probably to one of them here just on the time interest is, but uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 36 says this. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease from being a nation before me. He chose the people of Israel, and there will always be a nation before him as long as there are stars in the sky, he says. As long as you look at and see Adam, Israel will forever be a nation before me. And it all comes back to this selection God made freely to choose Abraham to be his agent. And, uh, and it wasn't just Abraham, because Abraham has lots of children. Abraham has Ishmael. Abraham uh, then has uh, children from, grandchildren from Ishmael and then from Isaac, doesn't he? But he chose Isaac's line. And then he goes on to choose Jacob, who becomes Israel, and that's the nation that he is choosing to show a special regard for and to use in a special way as a priestly nation. He's a treasure possession for him. And God just freely, freely did that. And uh, so we have to just to accept that. And then we see the blessing and cursing of God's elect in all of this. Verse 3 emphasizes it, right? In the, in the big way, he says, uh, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. But you see, God doesn't bless Abraham just to bless him. He has a purpose through him to bless actually all people. So let's not lose that. that his choosing to bless Abraham is so that everybody can then be blessed. So God wants him to be a blessing, but he's going to bless Abraham himself along the way, as well as Isaac and Jacob and the, the nation of Israel as we go along through history. A lot, of, a lot of references for this. And we see this blessing and cursing dynamic is said to Abraham, but it's not said only to Abraham. It's said also to uh, Jacob when Isaac is dying. He uses the very same words. He says, may those who bless you uh, uh, be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Uh, when Balaam cannot curse the people of Israel, he has to pronounce a blessing on them, and he announces the same thing. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Uh, we find this plays out uh, very well in the, the book of Esther. Uh, look at Haman, what happened to him. Haman comes against the, the Jewish people. He wants to annihilate them, right? He wants to wipe them out entirely. And the message of, of uh, that book is how God is able to preserve his people. And Esther, Queen Esther is the one that took the courageous stand to set things in motion so that in the end of the day, it wasn't the Jews that were destroyed. It wasn't Mordecai, Esther's uncle, that hung on the gallows. It was Haman hung on the gallows, and uh, the Jewish people were actually advanced. And so Haman, because he wanted to curse the Jewish people, ended up being cursed by God. 
and uh, this played out in history that way uh, for him. Psalm 122.6, you know, may, uh, may those who love you prosper, he says of Jerusalem. Zechariah 2.8 says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye, <laughs> in a context of where international affairs are being addressed. And so God just has this uh, love, and he has chosen the people of Israel, and this cursing and blessing effect comes into play. Um, so we need to keep that one in mind. Keep up with my references here. The New Testament says plainly in Romans 11, verses 28 and 29, as far as the gospel is concerned, speaking of the Jewish people and the people of Israel, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. All right, so this is a New Testament perspective also on the people of Israel. So this whole idea of blessing and cursing, I think, needs to be paid attention to. Uh, and we see how it played out, for example, in World War II with the Nazis, all right? The one that wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, he was the one that was wiped out and uh, did not succeed, even though there was a horrible uh, price that was paid by the Jewish people. Uh, and I'll just put it this way. You can't hate that which God loves, that, that which God loves and expect to prosper, right? And you can't curse that which God loves and, you know, and expect to prosper. And it's exactly what Hamas is doing right now, and I think it just plays into the, the mix of things here. The third thing I just mentioned here is the possession of the promised land. Uh, there is a land that is promised to Abraham in verse 7. Keep shifting here. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built the altar there to the Lord where he had appeared to him. You know, he says it in Genesis 15, 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. All those Canaanite peoples. Hi there. Um, so uh, we see the, the land being promised there. And then in Genesis 17, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and, and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. This just gets repeated again and again. And I want you to know that it has uh, end of days implications as well, last days implications. Um, I have some references on the screen there from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy emphasizes the principle that Israel, although they have an unconditional promise of the land, their possession of it and enjoyment of it is conditional. And it's only when they don't practice idolatry and iniquity do they allow, are they allowed to live in, in the land and enjoy the blessing of having the land. So the promise is unconditional, but possession of it is, is conditional. And it sets forth a pattern in those three passages that uh, when you sin, I will disperse you, but then when you seek me with all your heart, I'll bring you back to the land. And so that's... Uh, that's just a dynamic we see there of how they can go and how they can come back uh, because um, that's just the, the way the promise works. It's an unconditional promise, but the possession is conditional. Leviticus 26 also uh, teaches us that, that uh, about the possession of the promised land. But it was repeated again and again, and I can say then for the end of days, I'm going to read just one of these passages. Uh, Amos says this quite plainly. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. 
New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel on their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So clear to the end of history, God has that uh, as a promise for the people of Israel. We see it taught then by the idea of the uh, dry bones coming together in Ezekiel 37. If you remember the story there, uh, these bones, can they live again, is asked, and they're brought back together, and they're brought back together, but they don't have uh, skin and, and, and uh, flesh on them yet. And then that's added to them. And then uh, they don't have life in them yet. And the Spirit goes into them and gives them life. And it says this is what's going to happen to Israel. Israel's going to be regathered, but dead and eventually then have life breathed into them. So there's a lot, of, a lot of passages like this that speak along these lines of what is going to happen and what God has in store for the people of Israel. And so we have to see that this goes all the way back to Genesis. And when you see the enemies of God's people, the ones that fight them are the ones that thought they should have had the blessing instead. The Ishmaelites wanted the blessing. Right? Esau wanted the blessing. He cried and sought for it, and then he fought for it. And you find the Edomites and all those. And So many of the, the nations that fight against the Israelis are descended from Abraham. Right? Not all of them, but quite a number of them are descended from Abraham. So this is a, a current conflict with very ancient uh, roots. I think it there we'll, we'll maybe leave that and not go to the next thing I want to do. Brother, I don't want you to close the time off yet. Um, we've got just a couple minutes. I think we go on here. But uh, the, the thing is there are believers there in the land. We need to be praying for them. We can support them. It's a challenge to be a Palestinian believer right now. It's a challenge to be a Messianic Jew right now. It's challenging to be an international believer right now. But they need our support. They need our prayer uh, in the midst of all of this. This is a place, part of the world that's known lots of conflict. Uh, this is just another manifestation of that. It's a particularly horrific one. It's animated by a very devilish spirit that wants to annihilate the Jews. And I don't think that will succeed biblically, according to what the Bible teaches and what we've learned from uh, history. Does it mean we hate those people? No, God loves all people. We want to see Palestinian people blessed. Does it, uh, does it mean that we, we don't care about Gazans who are perishing in a war? We do. We do care deeply about that. That's also a, a human, uh, not a human value, but a Christian, a Christian value specifically. We do care about that too. But somehow there has to be a recognition. God is free to orchestrate these things to carry out the plan that he revealed to us in his way. And he's going to do it. He's determined to do it. And so there's, there's a lot more to think about. I had a few other things prepared, but the time just gets away. But I'm just wondering, would there be a few questions here this morning you would like to ask? Uh, we can close. There might be just topics I haven't even begun to touch on here uh, this morning that uh, are just a concern of yours, um, a curiosity. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you think of the the, uh, movements that have happened to form the nation of Israel that, you know, that happened through the UN and the Balfour agreements and so on, and the nation was reformed in 1948. And then you look at the conflict and, and... you know, the newspapers are on both sides about the, the atrocities that, are, that have been committed and so on. Uh, how, are we, how are we to look at this history? 
I mean, it seems like you're saying God has a plan that he is going to bring to pass, but I'm not sure that you can make right and wrong sense out of it. It seems to me like, uh, you know, were these original agreements that formed it, were they all righteous and, and so on, or were the Palestinians given a bad deal? Or mm -hmm. um, So I was just wondering if you could uh, maybe address that. The whole last section of my presentation was actually addressed to that question, <laughs> the, the history of how the, the modern history of how the, the state came into being and all that. Uh, so it's, it's a lot uh, to answer because you say it's very complex. Um, um, would I say everything was just? Uh, no, <laughs> no. I think God somehow sees his will get accomplished even through the unjust action of people, all right? And that's some of those things that I mentioned out there. Even uh, he, he uses even bad rulers who do horrible things to yet accomplish. Somehow he's superintending to see good things happen. Uh, so in line with those five things I had on the very first slides that I went through, I, I do believe that uh, there is a nation of Israel because God wanted it to be. All right? There's no authority established except that he's established there. Right? He raises up kings, he puts them down. So he, he made this, uh, this uh, political entity come into being. And, uh, and it parallels nicely with the prophecies of how at the end of days he's going to regather his people from the four corners of the earth. So I think God was in it. Uh, was it always done and executed in a righteous way by the powers that be? No, no. Uh, and so... It is, a, it is a complex uh, issue. Did the Arabs get the bad deal? I'm not prepared to say they did. I think the Arab posture throughout, if you look at modern history, just go back from uh, World War I on. I mean, you can go back so far, right? But even if you go to, uh, from World War I on, uh, they were offered pretty generous deals, but they were all or nothing always in their posture. I mean, we, we have it all and the Jews get nothing or this isn't going to be a deal. All right, we got like four major times that happened, and they were watershed moments when they, they, they declined it. Most recently, the year 2000. I thought for sure there was going to be the establishment of an independent state. I was living over there at that, those days, uh, right, when uh, Arafat and Barack were with Bill Clinton in his last year of his presidency, and they were coming up with these agreements, and I thought for sure they were going to have one, and finally there was going to be a Palestinian state alongside the Israeli state, and a lot of the Palestinians thought it was going to happen too. <laughs> and we're just sorely disappointed when it was turned down because uh, he, they were offered like about 98% of what Arafat was asking for. But they just go all or nothing every time. Abba Evan, who was an Israeli politician, famously said they're the, the people who never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, and by saying that, it's just this, we don't feel like, I don't feel at least, that the uh, Arab population has been served very well by their political leaders. And very often there are people that have been despots and dictators and have led by terror, like Hamas right now. I mean, you can't, you can't go against Hamas <laughs> and stay alive, right? There's not like a freedom of press in the territories uh, like you would have in, in Israel or in a democratic society. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered everything that you had in that thing there, but I could come back at some point and go through the modern, the modern times and uh, talk through what happened at each state, state along the way. Uh, during the beginning of the mandate years, the end of the mandate years, the various wars uh, and the various uh, peace conferences that have been held 
uh, from time to time and what came out of those. But it's, uh, again, we don't whitewash anything ever that's wrong. One of the things that's a revelation to us in this modern time is we now live in a time where warfare plays out on your telephone. And you see real active shots of what happens in war. Now, if you may have some here who fought in World War II or fought in Vietnam. I mean, war is ugly. It always has been. All right? And it's never a pretty thing. Are there just causes that people go to war for and die for? I think you can make that case from Scripture. Uh, but it's a, it's a messy thing. And when it's brought into your living room and you individualize it and say, look what happened to this person, this person, that person, it's a very, it's very traumatic, isn't it? It just... Uh, yeah, we live in a time where warfare and the way it's fought is just so different and the way it gets reported and uh, the way press gets manipulated. Uh, it's an information war. It ends up being a psychological war and you don't know what to believe all the time. Yeah, it's true. It was a long answer and I don't know if it was a satisfactory answer, but <laughs> I tried. Is there anybody else that just had anything at all they wanted to? All right. Like I said, uh, you, you tell Mark if you'd like to, I'd be glad to come back, whether it's an evening service, afternoon uh, special, or, or um, I mean, a midweek special, or a, uh, you know, another worship service. I'd be glad to do the, you know, the modern history from World War I on. But today it was enough, I think, just to get planted in your heads, you know, the idea of how God does work in these ways, and we often don't like to think of how he works through something like war, but he does, and how he is sovereign over all history. And uh, he has made promises uh, that pertain to Israel. It doesn't mean they're blameless in everything they do. They're still in unbelief, right? But they've been gathered back to the land, and God does have a plan for bringing them to belief too, which is also prophesied. And he does love the Palestinian people. He wants to bless them also. Uh, so I love it when I get into audiences where I have people that have a burden for the Palestinians. Somebody needs to love them, right? Somebody needs to carry the torch for them. Somebody needs to be praying for them. Uh, and I love it for the ones that are carrying the burden for the Israeli people as well. All right, brother, you're the ones closing the service, I take it. <laughs> Why don't you close us in prayer, and I'll just make the offer. If anybody would like to talk a question one-on-one, -on -one, I'll just linger down front here for a while, okay? Thank you, Reverend David. Uh, I trust that most of you were enlightened by his talk this morning. Uh, we do... Uh, recognize the sovereignty of our God and with that I want to pray Lord God we pray that everything that was said here today will be resting in our hearts and come go with us in the days to come when we endeavor with 40 days of prayer I pray that we will uh, recognize your sovereignty and ask for wisdom on how to pray, how to give to your causes on this earth because it's your will that we want to be done. We pray that each and every one of us will go out with your blessing today until we meet again next week. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.